Thank you, everybody. I am happy that I am on the floor, so I'm going to walk back and forth. It's quite a long distance. So if anybody can count my steps, then I'd be happy to know the <laughs> total number. <laughs> Thank you. Good afternoon. I hope everybody enjoyed the lunch break. And it's my pleasure to talk to you today about pain therapeutics, which is a part of the uh, Pain Educator Forum. Um, I am also certified pain educator, and as uh, Andrea said, I am uh, with the College of Pharmacy at Chicago State University. So I have been educating students for a while, recently focusing also on interprofessional education, and my specialty is pain management. I believe pain management is an excellent area for interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. At one point, I've done one year um, sabbatical on cancer pain management, and it was truly interprofessional approach. So... This is now very good that we uh, have our health professional students exposed to interprofessional education to prepare them for the interprofessional care as they become practitioners. So today my topic is pain therapeutics. You know, for a moment I try to define what means pain therapeutics, and it's, I believe, very broad definition. So I just took my take on, you know, in, in, uh, deciding what... I would like to cover under the umbrella of pain therapeutics. So basically what we will do today, and of course I have no disclosures, I'm just pure I'm an academician. Um, learning objective, we will be discussing the, first I would start with the impact of unrelieved pain, because I believe we all need motivation into whatever we do. So I believe knowing some of the facts about the epidemic and the problems associated with unrelieved pain is really a good motivator for us to do better in pain management or pain therapeutics. Then I would like to also talk about some basic general concepts that have to be considered and included in pain therapeutics. And then in the latter part, or maybe the last part of my presentation, I would cover some of the relatively recent clinical guidelines that have been released for specific types of pain. So we have two hours, so I hope that somewhere halfway through we will be able to wake up those people that have fallen asleep, but my sincere hope is that nobody would fall asleep, that you will try to be you know, attentive to the information that I'm sharing with you. Actually, I try to animate my slides, but then the visual equipment here in the classroom couldn't, you know, accommodate my animated slides. So hopefully we would manage somehow. So let's start with the information about prevalence of pain. I understand that you have been attending other program sessions during this conference. So there may be some overlap. And I believe a little bit redundancy is good because if the same issue occurs multiple times, you know, under different circumstances, that may show that it's really important. Okay, so uh, look at those things that you might have heard earlier about and you see now on my slides as something that possibly is important. Not to forget. So we have about 111 million people in the U.S., about 25% of the population that experience pain. And altogether, this is more than patients suffering from diabetes, cancer, and heart disease combined. So that's pretty striking number. 50 to 75% of cancer patients are dying in moderate to severe pain. 
that's really appalling. Fifteen percent children with cancer are in pain. Twenty percent Americans report disturbed sleep because pain. Chronic pain and sleep disturbance, they usually go head in head. You have um, one session, I believe, during this conference that mirror has two faces. We have sleep, depression, and pain. Um, Seventy percent of chronic pain patients reported to have pain despite treatment. That's, that's really nothing good to hear. 20% patients claim that treatment worsens the pain. Okay, and there's also research showing that prolonged use of opioids can actually counteract the analgesic effect of opioids. There are some changes within the central nervous system that cause this type of reaction. 50% of post-op pain is inadequately uh, managed. Now, we have also some other statistics. This is from 2015. The CDC and NCHS announced that 25.3 million of American adults suffer from daily pain. And in terms of cost for treatment and loss of productivity, we are having $635 billion a year in medical expenses. Now, some other striking facts. Um, nearly 15,000 people die every year of overdose involving prescription painkillers. So, you know, we have on one hand dilemma from, you know, effective management of pain, chronic pain, and then on the other hand, as we try to do it well, the, the best we can, we are encountering another dilemma problem, which one of them is, what, is this staggering number of individuals that die from overdose of painkillers. One in 20 people in U.S. ages 12 and above reported using prescription painkillers for non-medical reasons. And then um, it has been estimated that in 2010, the, there was enough prescription painkillers that would allow to medicate one American adult for around the clock for a month. Okay, so you can imagine some people don't take at all pain medications, but then some take really a lot. So all this factual information, you know, really indicates that there's a serious problem. So that's why there's a need to really seriously take the approach to pain management and pain therapeutics. So a quick recall, what percent of chronic pain patients claim to have pain despite treatment? What do you remember? 70%. Okay, um, I did animate my slides for this presentation, but unfortunately that's not possible. So yes, the correct answer is four, 70%. Thank you. Now, so pain therapeutics as an essential component of pain management process. Please keep in mind that pain management is a process, okay? It has several components, maybe not several, but few components. So today we would be focusing mostly on pain therapeutics. Nevertheless, we have to put it in context of the other components that are important, okay? So basically, and again, as I said earlier, this is my take on pain therapeutics. So pain, uh, in terms of pain management process, we have to talk about understanding or knowledge of pain processing and pathophysiology. 
we have to talk about components and classification of pain, pain assessment, of course, and then in terms of analgesics, we have to understand pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, adverse effects, and any other associated uh, effects uh, that this analgesic can have on uh, patients. And then, of course, we need to take into consideration evidence-based clinical guidelines, because this is something that, you know, uh, have been defined, described, and supported with solid evidence to facilitate our decisions on making um, the pain management process as effective as possible. And then the last but not least, we have to be really committed to treat pain safely and effectively. So why do we need to know pain processing? What I would like to do now is just to go through some of the, uh, through all the steps, but with less or more emphasis. And then when we talk pain therapeutics, I will be a little bit more specific. So why do we need to know pain processing? Because it would help us to understand at which point or step through the process, the processing process, we can have chance to intervene and stop or inhibit this processing. So to better understand the and manage the pain therapy, because we have nociceptors, you know, on periphery, and also in the central nervous system, we have to understand what's happening. We have regions in spinal cord and brain. We have pathways that are ascending, descending, and each of them has to be treated differently, right? The ascending pathways we want to inhibit. The descending pathways we want to potentiate, because the descending pathway is inhibitory. Okay, so these concepts are really essential that we would make logical decisions in terms of our efforts to interfere with pain processing. So I have put together like a very simplistic uh, uh, table to again highlight the most important uh, elements of nociception, which is the basic process of normal pain processing. Okay, we have the in the ascending pain pathways, we have transduction and transmission. Then uh, the signal gets to the brain, where's the conscious experience of pain, perception of pain. And then from brain downward, we have the descending pain pathways that are by nature inhi to inhibit the nociceptive impulses. And then we have to, that's the modulation. So if we understand the basics of the pain processing up and down, I would say, then it also makes us a little bit more um, cognitive about how do we best approach and maybe the modern one point through, throughout this processing pathway that we can interfere with our therapy. Okay, so another concept to really keep in mind. There are different components of pain. Pain is always a multi-part syndrome. It's not just one entity, okay? We have to keep in mind that we can differentiate three categories of pain that are actually related. The first one, sensory discriminative, that relates to physiological processing of pain sensation. The second one is motivational affective, relates to the emotional or unpleasant state of pain. And the cognitive, cognitive evaluative relates to anticipation, attention, memory, and reaction to pain. Okay? And all three happen at the same time. 
Just try to imagine yourself you have pain, especially chronic pain. Most likely, you can assure that each of these components of the multi-part syndrome of pain is present. Then again, I am a visual person, so this is also another graph that I would like to use to re-emphasize the multidimensional model of pain. We have the basic pain processing, the nociception that relates, that kind of expands into pain perception, then suffering and pain behavior. So when you see patient with pain, you don't see really the nociception. Maybe you don't see the processing of pain that clearly, but you see the patient behavior. Okay, so that's the visual sign that you have based on which, and also with your assessment tools and other diagnostic techniques, you can come down to understanding a little bit better the origin of the pain and how it is processed. Okay, so, um, so quick recall, motivational affective component of pain is related to Anticipation and reaction to pain, unpleasant state of pain, memory of pain, location, intensity, and duration of pain. Which of these four? Location, intensity, and duration of pain is more physiological in nature. Memory of pain and the unpleasant state of pain is, um, memory of pain is more um, you know, s sensory. And then uh, anticipation and reaction to pain is similar to memory of pain. So basically the motivational affective component would be related to unpleasant state of pain. Now, in terms of pain classification, so we just covered, uh, you know, the components of pain to let us understand that pain per se is a syndrome of multi-part component. So pain classification is also essential for pain, effective pain therapeutics because a starting point for managing pain and patients with painful disorders is to classify the pain that they have. Again, as we said a while ago, you would see the patient and the patient behaviors, patient in pain. But the next step to do is just identify what class of pain this patient is experiencing. So we have several um, definitions for pain classifications. Could be adaptive or maladaptive. Nociceptive, it's usually an, an alarm, so it's good to have pain sensation once in a while. Then we have also a category that we call inflammatory pain, neuropathic and functional, which is non-inflammatory, non-neuropathic, and there's a variety of ways to classify pain. And I'm going to spend a few more slides to talk about the specific classifications of pain. You can also base pain classification on location or body system that is involved, or you can talk about etiology as the basis for pain classification, like chronic cancer pain or chronic non-cancer pain. We are all familiar with assessing pain intensity. 2001, it, the JCO has started requiring that all hospital organizations would have pain as fifth vital sign. And of course, they have started using the numeric pain intensity scale that's extremely simplistic. But at least they could measure, quantify somehow. They would ask you, okay, how is your pain today? 
5, 3, 10, whatever. Okay, so the pain intensity is very commonly recognized and known and, uh, as a means of classifying pain. So quite often when you read information on which of the analgesics to use, they go by the pain intensity. For mild pain, use this, this. For severe, use this, this, and so on. So this classification has many practical implications, has had many practical implications. Now, we have also a classification of pain based on duration. You have heard acute, chronic pain, right? So there are some rule of thumb that can be used to define which way you can um, uh, say that the pain is acute or chronic. So as you see over here, the rule is that if it is less than 30 days in duration, then we consider it as an acute. And then on the extreme, we would have chronic pain of 90 and above days of duration. Some people even call it the golden 100 days. In between, we have recurrent acute pain and also subacute pain. And again, the borders between those two categories based on duration can be a little bit diffuse. So it's also important to be able to, when you have patient in pain, to define whether we are dealing with acute pain, recurrent acute, subacute, or maybe chronic. Another important thing, we have extremely a fast increasing number of uh, adults, baby boomers and stuff, and it, in terms of pain duration, statistics have proven that the age, the older the patient, the higher percentage or incidence of chronic pain. If you pay attention to the purple and, sorry, to the purple and gray uh, color on those pie charts, you can see that 65 year and, and over, individuals, they have significantly higher percentage of pain of duration from three months to one year and then also over one year. So keep this in mind that most likely in elderly individuals or older individuals, the chronic pain prevalence would be pretty significant. Now, the next uh, thing I want to quickly go over is the categories of pain. We have nociceptive that can be differentiated or divided into somatic and visceral. The somatic is easy to describe because why we're talking about, you had patient coming complaining of the pain, you do assessment and evaluation of the pain, you're asking tons of questions, okay? So like location, and then based on how the patient is describing the pain and sensation of pain, you should be able to at the same time go through trying to fit it into one of the known categories of pain. Okay, so for example, if patient is talking about pain that can be easily localized, it's constant, it's kind of aching and throbbing, uh, that means that most likely it's somatic. On the other hand, when the patient cannot really pinpoint to a specific localization for the pain, you know, that means it's more generalized pain, then most likely it will be in the category of visceral. And then, of course, based on the category, there would be specific recommendations for analgesics that are preferred for one or the other category. Okay, like, for example, on this slide, you can see that the somatic pain is known to respond really well and best to non-steroidals, while the visceral pain responds to opioid analgesics. 
Then we have neuropathic pain, and you have heard about it already in other places. It's a very different category of pain with different uh, presentation. And then in terms of response to analgesics, it's not really responding well to opioids. And quite often, as you may know too, we have to utilize, in addition um, uh, to uh, some um, non-pharmacologic measures, utilize adjunct adjuvant medications, pain um, that would help with the relief of the pain. The next thing I would like to talk for a while is acute versus chronic pain. So as you see, before we even start on therapeutics or uh, analgesic agents, this is really important concept because then your choices, selections of analgesics would be based on what you were able to get from the initial assessment of the pain from your communication and interactions with the patient. Okay, so few additional pieces of information related to acute and chronic pain because these are the most common categories that you would like to at least start with when you're trying to come up with a therapy for it. So acute pain is usually typically self-limited, is protective, it's useful and keeps us alive and limits trauma from injury, okay, because we escape the acute pain stimulus. Now, quote-unquote toxic consequences of acute pain, and it's important to keep this in mind, even though it's very short-lasting, so the damage is not so big. But imagine that the acute pain is not relieved. It quickly develops into chronic pain, and those quote-unquote toxic consequences become sources for pathological changes and um, uh, uh, harm to the patient. So that's why even with the acute pain, it's important to keep in mind that we do have consequences of this acute pain. Increased blood pressure, heart rate, metabolic rate, lower tissue oxygen level, wound healing is impaired, immune system not as efficient, problems with sleep and negative emotions. And then it has been proven for some time now that prolonged acute pain can evolve to chronic pain. And that's not a situation that we would like to have as pain management expert. Chronic pain. You know, of course, it's nothing that anybody enjoys. The quality of life is significantly reduced and then has no protective value. That means we should get rid of it because there's no value into it, if it is persistent, can take over people's lives. And we know patients like this, that's true uh, in terms of chronic pain. And, you know, for a long time, we have always talked about pain in association with some other pathologies or diseases. But actually, uh, for the years back, I don't know, about 10 or maybe more, there's a conviction that pain can become um, easy, a disease of its own, okay? So in terms of statistics, one of three Americans has chronic pain, and about 31% of um, uh, population has chronic pain. Now, the most recent attempt to classify chronic pain has come through the... International Association for the Study of Pain, they have put together a, a, 
a group of experts, pain experts, to try to characterize and classify chronic pain into categories. And this has been uh, done in conjunction with WHO, and this is the organization, the World Health Organization, that works on international uh, classification of diseases. So once in a while they go through um, a version of those classifications, and for the first time ever, it has been proposed to this ICD, International Classification of Diseases, that chronic pain would have seven categories. This decision is not yet final. It should be voted by the WHO in 2017. But these are the seven categories of chronic pain that has been proposed. And this information has been published already. So we have chronic primary pain, chronic cancer pain, chronic post-surgical and post-traumatic pain, chronic neuropathic pain, chronic headache and orofacial pain, chronic visceral pain, and chronic musculoskeletal pain. This is really very exciting happening because what that means that through the official categorization of pain, meaning within the disease categories of all other uh, classification of all other diseases, we would have now categories of chronic pain. Now, very important for pain therapeutics or any pain management, chronic pain should be seen as two-part uh, syndrome, okay? We have two elements into chronic pain. Baseline, persistent pain, and also breakthrough pain. Both of them, or each of the components, they need to be treated independently. This diagram, the cartoon that's on the slide, has been known, or I'm familiar with it for a long time, and it's a very good depiction of, you know, how these two baseline and breakthrough pain relate to each other. When you look at this graph, if you haven't seen it, the blue line is the therapeutic regimen that covers pretty well persistent pain that goes chronically over time. We know that people with chronic pain, whether it's a cancer pain, for example, they do have episodes of breakthrough pain, which cannot be covered by the around-the-clock analgesic medications. So, therefore, we have to, in conjunction with the regimen for the around-the-clock pain control, we have to have regimen for baseline, for the breakthrough episodes of pain. So I would like to give you a little bit more information. If this is a review, that's wonderful. If not, then um, it's a good opportunity for you to learn. So the breakthrough pain, on your right hand side, you see the definition by the, um, you know, it's already 10 years old. It's basically breakthrough pain, the episodes of transitory pain that happen in patients with chronic baseline pain undergoing analgesic therapy. Now, in terms of subtypes of breakthrough pain, we have three basic categories, the idiopathic, precipitated or incident breakthrough pain, and also end of dose failure. It's also important to be able to characterize if the chronic pain patient complains about episodic breakthrough incidences of pain, excruciating pain, we have to investigate a little bit where's the reason for that, okay? Sometimes it won't be possible to figure out the reason. 
then you just, in terms of descriptive information, try to gather how frequent it happens. And so to just help you design, uh, identify best analgesic for this type of uh, uh, breakthrough pain. Then the precipitated or incident breakthrough pain can be sometimes predictable. For example, uh, in the cancer pain clinic, we have patients that would like to do gardening in the, gardening in the morning. So we would, uh, of course, uh, the, you know, recommend for her immediate release um, opioid that she was asked to take half an hour before she goes outside to work in the garden. And that was very well received by the patient because we did a little bit like preemptive analgesia plus the timing for the uh, breakthrough dose or the rescue dose was very efficient. So this lady cl clearly had a precipitated type of uh, breakthrough pain. End of the dose failure is a problem for health professionals because mostly these breakthrough episodes happen before scheduled dose of around the clock analgesic. And that's really easy to fix, okay? So please keep in mind that even when you're talking about breakthrough pain and medication that you would need to recommend, you have to do a little bit exploration around the causes of that breakthrough pain. Okay, few graphical uh, presentation of the types of pain. So we have, you know, on your left-hand side, you know, intermittent pain, the blue is no pain, and then you have those episodes, let's say once a month or once a week, a headache or something. That could be an example for intermittent pain. Persistent pain is just nonstop, you know, goes a little bit up and down, but it continues. Breakthrough pain, we have the persistent pain, as we said earlier, with spikes of the breakthrough pain that could be caused by some associated um, uh, conditions. Now, another important message in terms of pain, especially chronic pain, is to remember that over time, one type of pain can evolve into another one. Okay, so this is very simplistic uh, diagram to, to use, but the message is very clear. Be prepared, because usually chronic pain patients, the therapy takes years, so you have to be aware that as you assess things at the beginning of the therapy, the, the same picture may not necessarily be, um, uh, you know, uh, available for the same patient as the time goes um, by. So, consequences of unrelief pain. We were talking a little bit earlier about the consequences of acute pain, so-called toxic. We can differentiate those consequences for physiological let me just bring them all up so you can just read through that. I want to read all of them. They're pretty known already, you know. It's just the physiology of the body is affected heavily by the presence of unrelief pain. Now, I want to point out to the last one on the list, brain atrophy. In about, uh, I don't know, less than 10 years ago, there were studies that have shown that chronic pain caused brain shrinkage by as much as 11%. And that was comparable to the uh, amount of gray matter lost due to 10 to 20 years of aging. Okay, so this has been pretty, uh, you know, striking finding and definitely true finding. Okay, so another strong, strong reason to take seriously management of chronic pain.
Okay? Now, the other consequences of unrelief pain we can uh, put in the category of psychological. We already talked about sleep deprivation, depression, quality of living, difficulty of making decisions, and existential suffering, as some people like to call it. To me, it sounds a little bit dramatic, but it is suffering anyway. And then, of course, immune system. There's lots of research going on to prove one or the other way whether the immune system is affected and how it is affected. But basically, the general consensus now is that there's impaired immune system in presence of chronic pain. In 2001, British Medical Journal has an, had an article published where they stated that wide, widespread body pain appears to double the risk of dying from cancer, meaning that the immune system possibly is, you know, less efficient and, of course, the patient is not as strong to withstand all the challenges due to the disease. Okay, so we do have serious consequences of unrelief pain, okay? So we have to do as good job as we possibly can to relieve any type of pain. So in summary, you know, we have said so far that there is a prevalence. The, 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 we are alarmed, hopefully, with the prevalence and cost of pain. And uh, pain has to be looked at always at a as a complex syndrome. The processing of pain involves periphery and central nervous system. We have variety of categories and types of pain that can help us to guide the selection of analgesics or even the therapy in general. And knowing the classification or category of pain that specifically that patient may experience can be used as an efficient guide for therapy. And then, of course, the detrimental consequences of pain in a variety of measures, physiology, psychology, immune system, and even imparting the brain function. And then we know that acute pain, when untreated or treated inefficiently, can evolve to chronic pain. And then over time, chronic pain can also become a different type of pain than when it started. So you see, once we don't do a good job with pain management, we are facing way more complex and complicated situation with the patient. So proper pain therapeutics, proper management of pain, and really good approach to managing patients in pain is essential. And we still have to do a lot because we know the statistics, right? So that's what I would like to focus now to highlight some of the essential things that have to be taken into account when planning for management of pain in a specific patient. And keep in mind that pain management should be always patient-specific. It's highly individualized effort. So the principal errors in pain therapeutics, and again, I'm presenting just my take on that. So if you disagree with me, hopefully we agree to disagree. So... <laughs> Number one is failure to adequately assess and reassess pain, okay? We just write prescriptions, send patient home, not do, paying much attention to anything else. Another thing is that we are not matching correctly 
the severity of pain with the therapy selected for that specific pain in that specific severity. Okay, and then number three, you know, failure to educate the patient and also the caregivers. Okay, because we can design the best analgesic regimen with non-pharmacologic therapies, but if patient is not adherent to this regimen or the recommendations that you're making, this whole effort is a failure, and it's not your failure. Okay, so it's very important to have very good um, co communication with the patient because we have patients at very different level of health literacy. You know, depends on the region. I used to work in South Texas. We were doing service projects in heavily underserved populations. The first thing we were doing with pharmacy students just do health literacy testing and also talking to them in nine, at least no more than nine. Um, uh, great level language, of course, in Spanish very often, to make sure that the patients truly understand the expected adverse effects and what the medication is doing, why are they getting this medication. And even in our small pilot study, we could see humongous effect or impact of the efforts that the students made to talk to the patient about the medications on the outcomes. They were actually diabetic patients, not pain patients, but I believe the same rule applies across any type of disease state that have to be managed on an extended period of time. So, in terms of uh, pain therapeutics now, I believe that there are some essential components that have to be taken care of. You know, it doesn't mean that one individual health professional, physician or nurse or uh, physician assistant, can take care of all those components together. That's why we need to have multidisciplinary approach to pain relief or pain management, okay? So definitely pain assessment and reassessment. To do it well, you have to know about pain therapies, analgesics and other pain treatments, and then also, you have to be able to design patient-specific plan for relief of pain. Oops, this is a duplication. Again, the final edition of the slides was a little bit different than what I prepared, so forgive me for some of those things. Now, we know that there are a variety of ways to relieve the pain, okay? So we can eliminate the cause of pain, prevent pain transmission, or change how the pain is perceived by the patient. Distractions are quite often a good way to try to do that. And also, we can change also patient reaction to pain. So there's a variety of ways to relieve pain. doesn't mean that at each of the way that you want to relieve the pain, you need to use analgesics. Okay, but you can you need to understand those things and know of them and be aware of them because the multimodal rational approach to pain therapy is also the best way to go. So it's, you're combining uh, analgesics or pharmacologic uh, ways of relieving pain with non-pharmacologic ways. So non-pharmacologic therapies, there's a long list of them. You can just screen them briefly, and I believe this means of non-therapies uh, for pain are becoming progressively more common and popular and recommended. 
because there is an evidence that they're effective. And then, of course, we have pharmacologic therapies of pain. So pain therapeutics would include the pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic uh, ways of pain relief. Analgesics, you know, we have opioids individually in combination, opioids that are agonists, antagonists, and then also we have muscle relaxants, non-opioid uh, combinations, non-steroidals, Tylenol, and other analgesics. You just, the list is extremely long. We have no reasons to fail with pain management because of insufficient medications. We have huge armamentarium of pain medications, pain relieving medications, so there's no excuse to fail in proper choice or selection of analgesics. Huh. Okay. So I would like to now focus on um, pain assessment. This is one of the things that I indicated as a failure that contributes significantly to ineffective pain management. Pain assessment is not a rocket science, and that we don't do it well is just a matter of not commission but omission. Don't remember to do that well. So if you are thinking about pain assessment, especially if you're in pain clinic, these assessments would be more sophisticated. But even if you're just in a small office that you have, you, know, you have patients with pain, you cannot ignore trying to assess the pain to the best way possible. So the pain assessment should include the pain intensity, pain tolerance, what is the acceptable pain level for the patient. Again, this is related to individualized approach to pain management. History of pain location, duration, onset, and variety of things, and most of all, never forget to assess how the quality of daily activities is imparting the pain. Uh, the pain is imparting the quality of living. And then also patient personal beliefs, and also what are the goals? What would be the ideal level of pain relief for individual patient? Because this is also very individually um, diverse. Now, the pain history uh, tool that is used well, and uh, the acronym for that is NOPQRST, number of pains, origins, palliation of pain, quality, radiation, severity, and also timing or trends of it. The pain um, uh, physicians quite use this quite broadly. Now, in terms of um, you know, the basic categories of pain intensity, we were talking earlier that in 2001, the JCO required all hospital organizations to consider pain as the fifth vital sign. So everybody is familiar with the categories of pain intensity, just numbers. Okay, no pain, mild pain, moderate pain, severe pain, and worst pain possible. Okay, these are the basic categories. They're by no means perfect measure of pain assessment, but could be used only as a guide to pain therapy, because we will be choosing among analgesics from analgesic based on the type of intensity of pain that the patient has reported. And then, of course, the pain scales, the stress scales that could be descriptive, numeric, or visual analog scale, they have been in use for a long time already. We have numbers are not the best way to assess pain. 
which is, as we said earlier, multi-part syndrome. So we do have pain diaries. There's also McGill pain questionnaire that's mostly used for most sophisticated clinical studies. Also, we can have a variety of brief pain inventories that can be used in pain clinics, for example, even the faces uh, scale for pain assessment for children or for uh, patients with dementia that cannot really communicate effectively about the pain intensity. Another example of very brief one-page initial pain assessment tool. So there's a variety of ways you can use. Either you design it yourself or you Google it or you download it. So there's no reason for not doing decent and documented pain assessment. Now, you might have heard about these four A's for pain assessment. You assess analgesia, activity, aberrant drug behaviors, adverse effects, and then most recently there was the fifth A added, which is called affect. Okay, so now we have five A's for pain assessment. So you see, I have just presented you a variety of ways that you can, methods and tools that you can use to decide on, you know, assessing how you want to assess the pain in a patient. Most recently, not most recent, but recently, um, there, there has been um, more uh, um, um, information coming up about a new tool called CAPA, Clinically Aligned Pain Assessment. And they use the subtitle that pain is more than just number. And very good that somebody is already moving in that direction. This is relatively young, uh, new, new approach, uh, originated from uh, University of Utah, uh, Health uh, Department of Anesthesiology. What they have proposed is to have patient and clinician clinician engage in conversation about the pain. And as a result, there would be like a coded evaluation of variety of measures. Intensity of pain, effect of pain on functionality, effect of pain on sleep, on therapy, efficacy of therapy, and also progress toward comfort. So I believe this is an excellent idea, and I believe it's going to continue to be um, improved and developed, and hopefully in this form or some other form, would be um, accepted for pain management because definitely we all agree that pain uh, expressed just as a number is not an ideal way to approach assessing pain or evaluating pain. Any questions to this point? So this was just, yes. Okay, so the question was about uh, benzodiazepines as one of the tranquilizing modalities recommended for pain. And um, what is my opinion on using opioids and benzodiazepines? Um, uh, you know, I would be showing later in this presentation the current guidelines on recommendations, and benzodiazepines and opioids are no. Okay, highly discouraged and not recommended to be given together. Okay, so um, we have a variety of um, reasons to, you know, not just research studies, uh, evidence-based, but also some 
you know, popular culture things where we've seen lots of drama and deaths because of overdose on those two, on the combination of these two uh, central nervous system agents. So my answer would be no, I would not support prescribing to the same patient opioid and benzodiazepine. <laughs> no, <laughs> the patient is still the same, you know, it doesn't matter, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why, you know, I am a big supporter, and I experience it in practice, of multidisciplinary approach to pain, you know. So every prescriber would know what the other prescriber would have access to the database, you know. Now we can do it with technology. So for the safety of the patient, I think that's the, the best measure to take. Thank you for the question. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. So very good. We have, you know, after this presentation, go, tonight is a reception, so you guys have to get together and just keep talking about the depression and stuff. Thank you. It's a very, very valid uh, comment. Okay. In terms of optimal pain relief, okay, we have to set reasonable goals. Doesn't mean that we have to always expect that pain will be completely relieved. That may be not possible. You have to, in terms of goals, make sure that whatever pain relief you're uh, targeting, there should be improvement of quality of life, including depression, feelings, and then also uh, the uh, minimum of adverse effects that we now always come with analgesics. Okay, so don't plan ever on absolute elimination of pain. Now, quality of life is practically, should be the main focus of uh, pain management efforts, okay? Looking back again to the numeric scale of pain intensity, you know, uh, the common understanding and consensus is that quality of life is, you can consider it relatively unimpaired if the intensity is about three or less of pain. Now, anytime the patient reports pain score eight, nine, 10, that means the quality of life is very poor. And this is uh, this green, the red light that should be flashing and telling us, no, we have to really aggressively move forward and relieve the pain so the quality of life improves also. Now, if people have lousy quality of life, of course, they are more likely to get depressed, right? So chronic pain and depression are extremely, um, you know, connected to each other. So now some of the basic concepts in pain therapeutics. It should be patient-specific always, and I cannot put enough exclamation marks. One size does, uh, does not fit all in terms of pain therapy. You have to assess and reassess clinical outcomes, not necessarily always when you make adjustment to the analgesics, but also, as we say, that the pain can evolve over time, right? Some other things can contribute to how patient perceives the pain, Maybe there's some other comorbidities or diseases. So every once in a while, you have to assess and reassess clinical outcomes to continue efficiently with the therapy. Now, we have to employ rational and multimodal pain therapy. This has been extremely loud and clear message from a variety of conferences, papers being published, and clinicians that this is actually the best way to 
go now to employ rational approach to pain therapy and also multimodal, and they both have to be put in a balance. So then, in addition, once you have this uh, pain therapy in place, you have to reevaluate it often, monitor the patient, make adjustments, and never ignore or forget to educate the patient and also the caretakers. So let's talk a little bit about the rational and multimodal approach to pain pharmacotherapy. This is a, a cartoon presenting the pathways of pain processing that we already introduced earlier. So from the peripherally, painful stimulation triggers an ascending pathway through spinal cord to the brain, then descending, um, descending modulation of the pain signal to the you know, periphery. So you can see in those arrows how many sites there is during this pathway, this processing pathway, where analgesic can be uh, effective. So that way you have uh, realized that there's multiple sites where we can intervene with the processing of pain. And that's what rational pharmacotherapy is based on. So we have, in terms of the site of action for analgesics that we have available, the opioids, they can act actually periphery, spinal cord, brain, and also the site of receptors, specific receptors. There's more than just the three types of opioid receptors, but those three, mu, delta, and kappa, have been extensively studied in terms of analgesic, opioid analgesics. Then we have non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, big category of medications. And then in terms of uh, enrichment of the number of sites that can be targeted in pain therapy, the adjuvant analgesics provide a wealth of opportunities because, you know, we can target additional receptors than the opioid receptors that are widely spread throughout the system, the adrenergic, for example, GABA, NMDA, vanilloid receptors, also ion channels, neurotransmitters, and also enzymes. So the adjuvant analgesics have really very good uh, you know, uh, attribute to pain management in terms of rational approach to pain therapy. Now, keep in mind that these two pathways, the ascending and descending path, pain pathways, they can be also manipulated effectively. Just to remember that the ascending we would rather inhibit, and then the descending inhibitory pathway should be potentiated. Then, um, okay, this is just very brief, simple study that has provided evidence for efficiency of rational pain pharmacotherapy. We have a small group of patients with neuropathic pain. They were given morphine gabapentin, morphine with gabapentin, and also placebo. And when you just look at the pain intensity rating, baseline was 5.3 almost. And then when the combination of morphine with gabapentin was used in those patients, the intensity of pain dropped from 5 to 3. So very significant improvement. We also have benefit because the dose of morphine and gabapentin has been significantly lower than if each of them was used as a single uh, analgesic. That means we also eliminated the um, uh, adverse effects. Not eliminated, but significantly reduced the incidence of uh, adverse effects with this rational approach to pain therapy.
So what are the advantages of rational pharmacotherapy of pain? Lower doses of opioids. With lower doses, we have less adverse effects. Patients can be more adherent and um, following the regimen. Then we have also better chance to maintain the efficacy and minimize the breakthrough pain, for example, because the different mechanisms of action help to either augment the effect of the other agent or potentiate the action in terms of synergistic interaction. And then also we can alleviate with this combined therapy different but associate symptoms, let's say, um, well, I cannot come up with a good, good example right now, but basically they're always, uh, especially when you combine the adjuvant analgesics with opioid, there's also a variety of effects that in addition to pain relief can be also alleviated. Okay, so with the combined different mechanisms of action, of course, we are targeting more than just one site of, uh, within the pain processing pathway. Um, the multi-model approach to pain management, for example, this is, again, simplified compilation from a studies that uh, were published in clinical colon rectal surgery. They focus on a multimodality approach to in pain management for pre-operative, intraoperative, and post-operative phases for the patient. And you can see that initially, pre-operative, they gave um, IV acetaminophen or ketorolac. And then uh, during the surgery, there was, uh, there's a typo. It should be wound infiltration, liposomal bupivacaine, and then post-surgery, Tylenol, IV, ibuprofen IV, uh, morphine in patient control analgesia, and then oxycodone PO until patient is able to take oral uh, IV until the patient is able to take oral analgesics. So you can see that the multimodal approach is also widely used and specifically can be effective for uh, post-surgical pain in order to minimize um, unnecessary prolongation of the uh, post-surgical pain that can evolve to chronic pain, and we know chronic pain is not a good thing. Now, some of the concepts that chronic pain management has to be based on, you know, we prefer thing is to give by the mouth, around the clock, and by the ladder. The WHO ladder has been designed many decades ago, and then maybe the last five years they have added the fourth step to the ladder, if all the modalities with um, non-opioid and opioid analgesics don't help, then what is recommended is the intervention, interventional um, you know, procedures to um, relieve the pain. Um, of course, we already talked about that the pain should be uh, geared toward individual. We have adjuvant medications, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and then also... Um, Okay, so I went a little bit faster with this. So basically, you know, we have um, some of the key concepts that have to be always kept in mind in terms of um, uh, treating chronic pain. Now, uh, there are some uh, concepts that I want to emphasize just related to the opioids only for chronic use. So I would like to talk about the initiation and adjusting of opioid doses, opioid rotations, 
and then management of breakthrough pain. Just some uh, uh, practical um, uh, pieces of information. So to initiate, the, if you have a patient that has not been given opioid before, the initial uh, opioid dose would depend on what opioid the patient taken or didn't take, experience with opioids, attitude about the opioids, and also any comorbidities that the patient can have. So usually the rule is to begin with a low dose of immediate release and titrate up in small doses until the effect is reached. Uh, the immediate release dosage forms have to be converted to slow release or extended release as soon as possible for chronic pain patients. Now, if we have to make adjustments of opioid doses, you have to increase it by percentage of the current dose. So for the mild to moderate pain, you would increase by 25 to 50%, for moderate to severe pain by 50 to 100 and then um, keep in mind that any increase of the dose less than 25% is meaningless. That's what has been accepted and agreed upon. Okay? So the opioids can be, if you have to titrate off opioids, then you also decrease by 25 to 50% every two to three days. And then uh, you can even go slower if you have longer time for that titration down, okay? So adjustment of opioid dosing up or down has to be done very carefully. And of course, it doesn't show on the slide, but anytime you make those adjustments, you have to combine it with assessment and reassessment of pain intensity. So what is the reasonable time in which you can expect improved analgesia or pain relief? Usually within the first one to two hours, if patient is in severe pain, the intensity should be reduced by 50% intensity of pain. And then also, the, in terms of escalation of opioid dose, depends on the half-life and the dosage form, okay? Because we know that we can have fentanyl that's very fast acting, but can also be put in a patch, which is different dosage form than just injection of solution. And we need to uh, consider dosage form in terms of frequency of dosing, how frequently you can increase the dose. And then the short-acting opioids usually given orally have to be um, escalated every one to two hours. The long-acting, 24 hours or patch, 24 to 72 hours. And then remember that when you have infusion, you have to give IV bolus to start with to bring the pain relief effect um, faster. Okay, opioid rotations. I would not go into much detail because there are separate presentations during this conference. We have reasons to modify the opioid or switch from one to another opioid. Adverse effects or change in patient status, sometimes uh, financial reasons. And Dr. McPherson has published wonderful book about conversion calculations and also with specific guides for effective dosing of opioids. So you can refer yourself. This is a reference table for estimating approximate equianalgesic doses for opioids, and they can be used, these doses should be used only as a guide. And then uh, also the 
process of the conversion of equianalgesic opioids is always a stepwise process. You have to, of course, you refer yourself to the conversion table, but you know this, as you see, the steps has to be combined with assessment and um, uh, you know like very rational stepwise approach. Um, breakthrough pain, we have talked about it a little bit earlier. In terms of estimating the rescue dose for breakthrough pain, you have to always use short-acting opioid. For oral dose, you do 10 to 15% of the total daily dose. Remember that the breakthrough pain happens in patients that are already around the clock on opioids. So you have to look at how much they take per day of the opioid and then take 10 to 15% of the total daily dose, oral dose, to estimate the breakthrough uh, pain dose. For the parenteral dose, you do 25 to 50% of the hourly dose, not daily dose. And then dosing for oral, about one to two hours for parenteral every 15 to 30 minutes. And then um, remember that if the patient needs more than three rescue doses per day, you have to modify the around-the-clock dosing regimen. Okay, and then this is just an example how to estimate the rescue dose. I, you would, if you like, you can have copy. If you want, you would be able to have the copy of that so you can practice on your own. And just a few things to remember, that anytime the oral dosing has been um, based on the conversion table, you have to keep in mind that this is all for immediate release preparations. Uh, whenever you calculate the estimated equianalgesic dose, you have to still reduce it by about 25 to 50%. As they say, start low, go slow. And then, um, I already said this, and then dosing should be individualized, especially in children, elderly, in compromised liver and kidney function. So just quick summary of the indications for analgesics. You know, the opioids are usually for severe pain, moderate to severe uh, chronic pain, and then Tylenol and adjuvant, they have also the specific designations based on intensity of pain, and the non-steroidals also. Um, opioids can be classified based on timing of action. We have long-lasting, and um, long-lasting would be either uh, because of the pharmacokinetic properties, like methadone and levorfanol have very long half-life. But then also the long acting can be created by the slow-release delivery system. Like we have a variety of oral, morphine, oxycodone, and others. We have also transdermal that are, you know, by slower acting because of the dosage form. Short-acting opioids have fast onset of action and short duration of action. Examples like oral uh, opioids, intensols. I think the people that work in uh, palliative care settings, you know, intensols may be quite um, popular, I think, because I've heard they work really very well. It's a con concentrated solutions of opioids that can be given um, intra under the tongue and absorbed very well and work very efficiently. And then, of course, short-acting opioid with rapid onset. We have a variety of dosage forms based on fentanyl, spray, liposome encapsulation, sublingual, etc. Now, 
When adjusting opioid dose for moderate to severe pain, the dose should be increased by what number percent? Three and four, 50, and two, uh, 50 to 100%, okay? We have for moderate to severe pain, the, should, the dose should be increased by that much, okay? Now, uh, now um, let's see, how much time do I have left? 45? Okay, that's, that's good news. Thank you. Um, so basically, I would like to switch gear right now and start talking about the recent clinical guidelines that have been uh, published or released or made available on few um, uh, types of pain. I couldn't cover all the types of pains, but I thought that, you know, the, from the perspective of the type of guidelines that ca came up and also the type of pain that they have addressed, I make this selection of types of pain, and I would like to now discuss the recommendations that came through those guidelines. Okay, so we will talk about post-operative pain, neuropathic, cancer, low back, osteoarthritis, and acute migraines. Now, anytime we, we talk about guidelines, clinical guidelines, we have to keep in mind that they're just guides, okay? They are not really absolute recommendations that we can believe are going to work with no problem for every single patient, especially pain patients. So the post-operative pain um, guidelines have been published in Journal of Pain. There was a panel of 23 pain experts that have been working for a few years uh, reviewing, doing meta-analysis of uh, research publications on the variety of um, studies done on post-operative pain. And based on those, uh, this literature review, they have come up with a variety of recommendations. Now, post-surgical pain, before I go to those recommendations, I just want to highlight the incidence of chronic post-surgical pain. It depends on the type of surgery. You see, 85% um, uh, uh, post-surgical pain Occurrence or incidence is in case of amputations, mastectomy 20 to 50 percent, thoracotomy 30 to 40, and so on. So you see all these percentages are pretty significant. So relief of post-surgical pain is extremely important. Now, the guidelines for the post-operative pain um, it's really interesting. Out of the 32 recommendations that I have made, only four of them have been based on strong evidence, okay, highly supported by uh, 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 clinical evidence, meaning that there were several studies, that there was consensus about those studies in terms of the findings and so on. Now, it's really interesting, those four specific things for which the panel gave strong recommendations supported with high-quality evidence were for multimodal techniques, and we already talked about that, right? Number two, Tylenol and or non-steroidals as part of multimodal analgesia in adults and children, assuming that they don't have contraindications. Then we have surgical site-specific peripheral regional anesthetic techniques in adults and children, and then neuraxial analgesia for major thoracic and abdominal procedures. Okay, so these are the um, recommendations uh, that have received 
uh, high quality evidence. Now, we have also strong recommendations with moderate quality evidence for uh, preferring oral over intravenous route for opioids administration. Intramuscular route is to be avoided. Using IV uh, patient control analgesia only if needed. And we should not be doing the PCA IV in opioid naive patients. So there shouldn't be a routine for opioid naive adults. Celecoxib should be used as perioperative in, in, as an oral dose. Gabapentin and pregabalin for multimodal analgesia and also using topical local analgesics with nerve block for circumcision. So these are the, the things for which the panel found, uh, decided to give strong, strong recommendations with uh, support from moderate quality evidence. Now, they also have um, additional things for which there were strong recommendations with moderate quality evidence. That topical local analgesics with Oh, this is rep repetition of the line, sorry. For, there shouldn't be any intrapleural analgesia with local anesthetics after thoracic surgery. That uh, continuous local anesthetic base regional analgesic techniques should be um, uh, utilized. And also, do not administer um, uh, uh, into the spinal spaces, magnesium, benzodiazepines, neostigmine, tramadol, and ketamine. So we have some restrictions to how we can use the neuroaxial uh, um, um, route for delivery of these agents. Now, the strong recommendation, even in presence of low-quality evidence for postoperative pain, is that the patient should be educated on treatment options, okay, and instructed on methods to assess pain, especially parents if they have children in pain. We have to do preoperative evaluation that's comprehensive, and then also adjust a treatment based on the pain relief and, and uh, presence or absence of adverse effects. And then also variety of tools for assessment should be utilized and monitoring of patients specifically for sedation, respiratory status, and other adverse effects. So you see, there were not much uh, strong quality evidence, but yet the panel decided that this should be given a strong recommendation. And then also there's variety of other things. If you look at them, they are mostly related to specific policies and procedures for clinics that uh, involve um, operation, um, um, management of patients with post-operative pain and control of that pain. And also, like for example, development of procedures for training personnel for safe delivery of neuroaxial analgesia, and also education of patients and primary caregivers about what's going to happen after they're relieved from uh, hospital, their discharge from hospital. So again, important things, even though there's still very low quality evidence to support them. Now, the weak recommendations with moderate quality evidence have been given for cognitive behavioral therapies, uh, IV ketamine 
in a multimodal analgesia. Uh, clonidine as adjuvant with, adjuvant with single injection peripheral neural blockade. TINS, IV lidocaine infusion for laparoscopic abdominal surgery and surgical site-specific peripheral regional anesthetic techniques. And then also insufficient evidence. The conclusion was uh, that there was insufficient evidence for uh, acupuncture, massage, and cold therapy effectiveness for post-surgical pain. Um, uh, Preoperative administration of opiates is not recommended. And then it is encouraged by the panel to incorporate newer techniques for post-operative pain. So as you may know that uh, every five or so number of years, the recommendations, the guidelines that have been published, they are revised and updated. So that's what may be happening for this specific set of guidelines. Yet this um, post-operative pain management guidelines have been uh, supported and, um, um, uh, by the American Pain Society and seem to be very good quality guidelines for post-operative pain. There's also another publication that presents guidelines for post-operative pain, and I decided to share it with you because it's focused specifically on ibuprofen. It has been said that a single dose of 400 milligram is effective analgesic, and about 50% pain relief has been observed. Now, interesting thing is that if the, if, uh, the dosage form of ibuprofen is soluble, and more soluble than, um, I mean, there's a variety of uh, types of dosage forms that differ in solubility, so they have found and shown evidence to support that the soluble salts of ibuprofen are much more better analgesic than um, the less soluble ones. So just a small uh, additional information about ibuprofen. The next uh, pain category with guidelines is neuropathic pain. And as you notice, for each of the pains, because I can uh, keep talking about those guidelines for many hours, yet it would be impossible for you to listen and even for me to talk that much. Therefore, for each of the type of pain that I have the guidelines selected, I'm giving you full references. So if you specializing or you have interest in one or the other type of pain and would like to go into more specific information on the recommendations or the guidelines, then you can always um, look into specific reference. So the, in terms of neuropathic pain, it's also pain that's very difficult to manage. The, in terms of prevalence, we have about 7 to 8% population, but those that have neuropathic pain, in terms of intensity, it's always severe um, intensity in 74% of patients with neuropathic pain. And then um, the neuropathic pain is quite prevalent in diabetes, HIV, post-operative, post-surgical pain, cancer, and shingles. So that's why there's really value in uh, coming up with good uh, clinical guidelines to um, plan to use for um, uh, relief of neuropathic pain. Um, so the guidelines for neuropathic pain, uh, they would categorize analgesics into first-line 
second and third line analgesic. So over here, I mean, there may be not, nothing really new or revolutionary in it because this uh, information has been around uh, uh, as a recommendation for neuropathic pain for some time now. So the first line analgesic would be the anticonvulsants, gabapentin, pregabalin, tricyclic uh, antidepressants, topical treatments, ladocaine, for example, patch, serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, duloxetine, venlafaxine, and also opiate analgesic, but the weak ones like tramadol. Second line, many of them are repeating itself, it's just in different sequence. We have the same categories of analgesics. Third line analgesics, again, some of the categories are repeating itself. So I believe that I have not seen more specific guidelines for neuropathic pain in terms of the categories of medications that would be recommended. So basically, the neuropathic pain may be more than many other types of pain um, that would uh, more challenging because it may need to um, reflect the specific patient needs and also preferences or pr prior experiences with variety of medications that can be also utilized and beneficial for neuropathic pain relief. And then the fourth line analgesics is the only place where the cannabinoids are being recommended. And again, the use of cannabinoids is based on specific state laws and rules and regulations, so it may not apply equally in every single state. Okay, so the next category is cancer pain. And again, I have this um, three references that I believe are useful. The first one is from the a chronic American Society of Clinical Oncology. Then the next one is from European Society for Medical Oncology, the ESMO. And then the next one, uh, next reference is from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. So basically I try to put the recommendation in a, a combined way to make it flow in a more logical way and basically I believe these uh, recommendations that come for cancer are very much reflective of what we already have spoken about in terms of uh, chronic pain relief, because cancer is one of the chronic pain um, uh, types. Now, briefly about the prevalence of cancer pain, we have about 33% of cancer patients that experience pain after curative treatment, 59 during the anti-cancer treatment. 64% of cancer patients um, have that pain uh, when they're in metastatic advanced or terminal uh, type of cancer. Pancreatic cancer is represented by 44% incidence of pain. Neck cancer about 40. And then um, 50 to 80% roughly individuals in cancer have inadequate threat, uh, relief of pain and then also quite heavy and wide range of uh, incidents where there's under-treatment of cancer pain. So the guidelines for chronic cancer pain, number one, you know, individualize. You know, anytime you see the patient, you have to screen for pain intensity. 
And then you have to have a comprehensive assessment in place available during the uh, contact with the patient. You have to um, also monitor any type of recurrent diseases or conditions that can happen along the time when patient, uh, cancer patient is treated. And also it's recommended to involve other health professionals. As I told you, I used to practice in a cancer pain clinic and we truly were most successful when we involved more health professionals. Sometimes once a week we had to have like a big round table meeting discussion with including people like, um, um, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, or, uh, um, you know, people from public health uh, insurance agents and whatever, because the, the number of complicated factors that the patients would experience was way beyond the medical, what we were able to manage. So this is definitely important type of cancer where team approach to pain relief is very, very beneficial. So now um, the medications that can be prescribed when there's no adverse effects, of course, or contraindications are non-steroidals, Tylenol, any type of adjuvant analgesics and also topical analgesic, and there's uh, many of those to choose from. Corticosteroids are not recommended for long-term pain relief. In terms of cannabinoids, follow the state regulations. In some states, it's okay to use for cancer patient. Um, opioids should be tried only after assessing risks and benefits for the patient. Again, education comes again to our attention. We have to make sure that patients on uh, pain medications should understand why and they take it, what potentially could happen, adverse effects or other things. And then also uh, in terms of risk for abuse, we have to minimize the risk and take any precautions available. And also, um, uh, as we discussed earlier, benzodiazepines and opioids, we have to be always very cautious and uh, mindful and think before we make the decision to prescribe opioid with another centrally acting medication. And benzodiazepines have been the most uh, tragic, uh, caused the most tragic effects when given together uh, concomitantly with opioids. And then um, if the opioids are not needed anymore, you cannot just abruptly stop. You have to gradually taper down the dose. So the guidelines for chronic cancer pain continued. Some of the non-pharmacologic therapies that have been recommended, you know, the uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, integrative therapies like acupuncture, music, massage, and psychological therapies, mindfulness, have been very popular this past few years. And also neurostimulatory therapies, the TINs, and any type of stimulation of transcranial, peripheral, or spinal cord. The European Society for Medical Oncology has provided uh, their own set, its own set of guidelines for cancer pain. There's some overlap and then uh, make lots of sense in terms of chronicity of the pain. So again, assessing regularly, educating patients, uh, prescribe the analgesic on a regular basis, oral route is the preference, 
rescue doses for breakthrough pain and also uh, you know, follow the WHO ladder to uh, go through this stepwise approach to optimizing the analgesic treatment for the patient. So these are not really new things, it's just reinforcing what some of the concepts that we have discussed earlier. Now, when there's a mild pain, of course in Europe they use paracetamol, or we can have any of the non-steroidals. For mild to moderate pain, combination of non-opioid with weak opioid, or use, um, you know, uh, if you don't do a weak opioid, just use low dose of strong opioid in combination with non-opioid. And then also uh, keep in mind that the, in terms of morphine, they emphasize that the relative ratio between oral to IV morphine is somewhere between 1 to 2 to 1 to 3. Just to make sure, specifically, keep it in mind when you're switching oral to, uh, or parenteral to oral. Now, for moderate to severe pain, oral morphine should be the first choice, according to the ESMR. For urgent relief of pain, use parenteral routes of administration, transdermal fentanyl or buprenorphine for, uh, uh, only for patients that have uh, stable requirements for opioids. When there's impairment of uh, renal function or uh, hepatic function, you have to make adjustments to dosing. And then also, uh, in terms of switching, from one opioid to another one, you have to make sure that it is, um, um, you know, uh, done in the proper way. So you have to become familiar and knowledgeable about uh, re-adjusting um, the opioid dosing based on the equianalgesic um, uh, parameters. Again, all patients with chronic cancer pain should have around-the-clock dosing with rescue dose. Uh, titration should be done with the immediate-release morphine, you know, with the rescue dose for incidental pain. Um, regular doses of slow-release slow morphine has to be also adjusted. And then immediate-release opioid must be used to treat breakthrough pain. Laxatives, you know, uh, have to be prescribed for prophylaxis and management of uh, constipation. Use of metoclopramide and anti-dopaminergic drugs has, is recommended for the nausea vomiting adverse effects. So you see the ESMR is also extending the recommendations including the adverse effects and also, um, you know, some, uh, they re-emphasize the need for uh, having rescue dosing design based on the around-the-clock dosing with opioids. So it's a little bit more broadly taken. Now the NCCN guidelines for adult cancer pain, basically they are very abbreviated. This is just a network of um, uh, you know, um, agencies that seem to be you know, um, uh, coming to an agreement on you know, how best to approach the cancer pain. Many of the concepts are very similar, you know, of course they utilize the classification of pain syndromes, assessment, management of adult pain with um, uh, terms of being prepared for oncologic emergencies, patients that are naive to pain or tolerant to opioids, 
naive, naive or tolerant to opiates, and also, uh, you know, whether it's an, another issue related to procedure and anxiety of that patient. Pharmacologic interventions include, um, you know, selection of analgesics, routes of administration, adverse effects, rotations, and so on. So there's lots of issues that relate to um, uh, identifying pharmacologic agents for pain manage, uh, cancer pain management. And also non-pharmacologic interventions are um, recommended. Again, these guidelines are not very specific. It's just that it shows the entire scope of things that have to be taken into account for patients with cancer pain. Um, lower back pain, it's another uh, type of pain that has been really challenging Yet the newest guidelines that are available have been very helpful. So basically the um, group that came up with the specific guidelines for lower back pain has been also endorsed by the American Pain Society. They have now um, uh, released, and I think in the American Pain Society publication, I didn't put the year, it's 2009, like phase two of the initial publication, uh, initial recommendations that have been published in 2007. So if anybody has specific interest in uh, recommendation, clinical guidelines for lower back pain, these two references are highly recommended. And just in a, a kind of abbreviated form, the key aspects of those guidelines, the strong recommendations with moderate quality evidence uh, talking about that the patients should receive evidence-based information on low back, low back pain. And then um, the uh, medications with proven benefits should be used. And also self-care is essential for those patients. The assessment of the baseline pain, functional deficit, and the benefits, risks, and other uh, um, efficiency and safety data should be uh, done before the therapy is initiated. And then for most patients, the first-line medication would be either Tylenol or non-steroid anti-inflammatory. That's the recommendation for the low back pain, strong recommendation. The first-line medication would be a Tylenol or non-steroid anti-inflammatory. The weak recommendation for lower back pain treatment um, that patients do not improve with self, uh, for patients that do not improve with self-care options, you can add non-pharmacologic therapy, and um, like for example spinal manipulation, or um, uh, interdisciplinary rehabilitation that would involve exercise, acupuncture, massage, and some other. Uh, uh, activities to including relaxation. So this is a weak recommendation for efficiency of these measures for low back pain. And then, um, let's see, let me just go back. I think this went quite fast. So this was the low back pain, some highlights of that. And then the one of the last, I think I have osteoarthritis and also migraine pain left, and that would be the last two guidelines that I want to uh, present to you. Osteoarthritis pain um, is um, the, usually um, based on the location of the 
a pain. The first one is the hand. For hand osteoarthritis, we have non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic measures. Um, uh, the, you know, and non-pharmacologic, you know, any type of devices, thermal modalities, splints, and so on. Anything that can assist with the, um, you know, arthritis in the hand. Pharmacologic, the conditional recommendation are the non-steroidals, COX-2 inhibitors, topical, capsaicin, non-steroidals, and also oral tramadol. What is not recommended is the intra-articular injections, opioids, and for the initial treatment at least. So for the hand osteoarthritis, not recommended pharmacologic uh, intra-articular injections, opioids, and um, definitely not for the initial treatment. But what is recommended are the non-steroidals, the selective COX-2 inhibitor, and topical preparations. For the knee osteoarthritis, the non-pharmacologic, again, very similar what was for the hand. Weight loss is an additional one that should be taken into consideration. It's a strong recommendation. For the conditional recommendation, they um, uh, say that supervised exercise program, psycho psychosocial interventions, uh, any type of activities, and also um, uh, acupuncture and so on. They do not recommend balance exercise and manual therapy alone. So if there's a manual therapy, it cannot be the only therapy for knee osteoarthritis. Continuing with the knee osteoarthritis, in terms of pharmacologic measures, what is the conditional recommendation is the Tylenol, uh, intra-articular corticosteroid injections, topical non oral or topical non-steroidals, tramadol, you should avoid for knee osteoarthritis, chondriontin, glucosamine, and topical capsaicin. What is not recommended for knee osteoarthritis is duloxetine, intraarticular hyaluronate, and opioid analgesics. And then for the hip osteoarthritis, the non-pharmacologic non similar you know, weight loss is still a factor, so that's recommendation, strong recommendation to reduce the weight. Conditional recommendation for the non-pharmacologic is any type of thermal agent, self-management programs, manual therapies, and then psychosocial intervention. Not recommended. Tai Chi, manual therapy alone, similar with the knee uh, osteoarthritis. And then for the hip pharmacologic intervention, conditional recommendations, uh, Tylenol, Intraarticular corticosteroids, so these agents are very similar to the knee osteoarthritis. What is not recommended, duloxetine, intraarticular hyaluronate, opiates, and topical non-steroidals. Um, you know, this is a base, the recommendation is based on uh, evidence coming from literature. So if there were no research papers on that to support that this hyaluronate is effective, they couldn't give strong recommendation. And I don't know exactly if there was a publication that they have reviewed that shown uh, that it's ineffective. 
um, I don't know myself when this would be done, you know, and I'm not familiar with the very specific paper that addressed the hyaluronodate, you know, so I'm sorry I cannot answer. Okay. And then now let's talk briefly about migraines. These guidelines have been um, done by the American Headache Society based on the evidence. And so the guidelines for acute migraines, they are in three levels, level A, level B, and level C. Level A is that the medications are established and effective. Okay, so what works by these guidelines for acute migraines is Tylenol, 1,000 milligram, ergots, dehydroergotamine, nasal spray, up as pulmonary inhaler, non-steroidals like aspirin, diclofenac, ibuprofen, naprosin, opioids, butorphanol nasal spray is in the level A under medications that are established and effective. Level A also includes triptans, and there's a number of them. Practically all triptans available for oral administration can be used for and also subcutaneous can be used for headaches, for acute migraines, I'm sorry. And then also combinations, you know, Tylenol, aspirin with caffeine, sumatriptan with naprosin, and so on. So this is nothing um, that you have not seen earlier. It's just that through these guidelines, it's re-emphasized as effective and established uh, regimens. Now, level B are the medications that are probably effective. Okay, antiemetics. Ergots, like the ergotamine with caffeine combination, non-steroidals, flubiprofen, ketoprofen, and ketorolox. So these are different non-steroidals that we have seen in, in level A recommendations. And then in level B, we have also magnesium sulfate for migraine with aurea, iso heptan, 65 milligrams, and also combinations of uh, codeine with Tylenol, tramadol with Tylenol. And basically that's, that's all. And I, uh, again, have to um, admit that those slides are not the latest version of the slides that I had. So it has been a little bit um, less easy to follow through the content of those slides. So now, um, as I stated earlier, if you have interest in any specific type of guidelines for specific type of uh, pain, uh, this presentation included, you know, um, quite a number of references that you can, um, you know, um, uh, refer yourself to and, and find specific information maybe about this hyaluronic acid and other things that people have questions about. So this is just a list of the references that uh, have um, uh, included specific guidelines. And I also added, you know, sometimes we have pediatric patients, there are some specific guidelines on use of uh, pain, uh, medications for pain management in newborns and also in geriatric patients. So basically that was all what I have to talk about. And again, thank you so much for your patience. It has been a very long presentation and not an easy content to present because there's lots of factual information. And I hope that what you got from this uh, couple of hours is just general perception about pain therapeutics, okay? That to do well in terms of pain therapy or pain therapeutics, we have to have 
not just the medications you know, that we prescribe or we recommend or whatever. We have to see the big picture of pain, variety of aspects and the dynamics of pain, things that change in patients with pain. The patient itself, we have to individualize always pain therapeutics. And then with this, we also have to take it and look at what the experts in field have been recommended or uh, scientists, clinical scientists have been found and supported with an evidence and just put it all together and make it a multimodal and rational always and patient specific. Okay, patient specific, rational, multimodal, balance these things to the best ability possible and utilize the volumes of resources that you have loaded with information that can be helpful. You know, so there's like uh, no way or no excuse um, for not doing a good job in terms of pain management. So if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer them right now. So thank you again for your attention. Did you have questions?